This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. And welcome to the first series of 2023. Happy New Year! This year, I'm going to be adding some special treats and surprises for my Once Upon a Crime listeners. I put a list together of the most well-received episodes of the last two years, and I'm endeavoring to give you more of those types of stories or formats. One thing I know my listeners like are deeper dives into truly unique and, may I say, bizarre cases. So for the first two months of 2023, I'll be covering two truly bizarre cases over multiple episodes, one story for January and another for February. These stories are so strange and full of odd details, and I know you're going to love them. If you do, make sure to share the podcast with a friend, family member, or coworker. I'd really appreciate it, and it helps us out tremendously to bring in new listeners. Without further ado, I will share a story that was so weird and unbelievable that Hollywood produced a thriller film based on it. This is the story of The Girl Who Cried Orphan, the case of Barbara Sklova. Teachers at a primary school in Oslo, Norway, were concerned about a new student in the fall of 2007. The boy named Adam was small and fragile, his complexion was pale, and he often appeared anxious and startled easily. One day, a loud noise scared the youth so badly, he broke down in tears, sobbing hysterically. He was sent to the school nurse, and then, when he continued to weep, was sent home. Adam was the 12-year-old son of a playwright and theater manager named Martin Farner. When Adam's teachers noticed over time that the boy seemed to be suffering from some sort of emotional distress, they began carefully questioning him. The boy at first did not want to talk, but the kindness of his teachers and the school staff finally wore him down. He tearfully revealed that his home life was one of abuse and exploitation. Adam said his father was sexually molesting him, and was selling him for sex to other men. In addition to the sexual abuse, Adam said he was also physically abused in such a cruel way it bordered on torture. Adam's father was arrested on suspicion of child abuse and sexual molestation. The boy was then placed in a facility for abused, neglected, and orphaned children. Just days after Adam was rescued, he was taken on a field trip with the other children. While the teachers were occupied, Adam broke away from the group and left on his own. Some witnesses later reported that he'd run to a car that was idling nearby. They noted that there were at least two men inside. Adam jumped into the vehicle and was driven away. News of the missing boy was broadcast to law enforcement and the public. Because of the reports Adam made about being sexually abused and exploited, police took the matter very seriously. They believed the boy may have been abducted by a child sex ring. A widespread search for the boy, including media coverage, followed. Three days later, a hotel clerk alerted police regarding a situation that seemed suspicious. A man had checked into the hotel with a very young boy in the city of Tromso. 
Oddly, the man and the boy who appeared to be about the age of 12 were observed holding hands. The boy seemed at ease with his traveling companion, but the open affection between them was considered odd, as the boy was well past the age that a teen or preteen would typically be seen holding hands with an adult in public, even if it was a parent. The clerk decided to contact the police to report her suspicions about an inappropriate relationship between an adult and a child. She did not tie this child to the widespread search of the missing boy from Oslo, since Tromso was over 1,100 miles or 1,700 kilometers north of Oslo. However, when she provided a description to police, they immediately suspected it might be Adam. Police arrived at the hotel and parked outside. When the man left the hotel, they followed him to a car rental agency. He was surrounded as he left the vehicle. He was taken into custody to be questioned. The boy was also picked up and taken to police headquarters to be interviewed. The boy was the person who'd gone missing from the children's home, but investigators were in for a surprise. He was not who he claimed to be. 12-year-old Adam Farmer, the real Adam Farmer, was away at a boarding school outside of Oslo. The person sitting in front of investigators who pretended to be Adam was not a 12-year-old boy at all, but a 33-year-old woman by the name of Barbara Skrilova. And that is only the tip of the iceberg of all the strange and surprising twists in this story. I hope you'll be able to keep up. This case, as I teased in the last episode, is a real doozy, and I'll do my best to unravel all the bizarre details right after this short break. If you're looking for a binge-worthy true crime podcast to add to your playlist, look no further than Human Monsters. Human Monsters details some of the most dark and depraved true crime cases on record, perpetrated by real-life monsters. But be forewarned, Human Monsters does not spare any details. In each episode, host Morgan Rector investigates the most shocking crimes, presenting the timelines and facts of each case, and peeks into the twisted minds of the perpetrators. From serial killers to cults and more, you'll be fascinated by each episode and learn about the bios, motivations, and M.O.s of each human monster. Some of the episodes you might want to start with are The Green River Killer, Gary Ridgway, or Kids Who Kill, Mary Bell. There are also episodes on more recent cases in the news, like the Gabby Petito case, as well as episodes on cults. The one titled Growing Up in a Cult is particularly fascinating. You'll have plenty of episodes to binge on, so dive in and let me know which are your favorites. If you love the thrill of peeking into the dark corners of humanity, Human Monsters will be the show for you. I really enjoy this podcast and always learn something new on each episode. I think you'll enjoy it as well. So check out Human Monsters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The first thing I need to explain is who Barbara Skrilova is. Even her bio is somewhat confusing. Barbara Skrilova was born in 1975 in the Czech Republic, or what was then Czechoslovakia. She was born with a rare medical condition called hypotuiturism. This almost unpronounceable condition causes the pituitary gland not to produce enough hormones, which may result in other glands, such as the thyroid and adrenal glands, not to work properly. The pituitary gland also makes growth hormone that helps children grow. One result of this condition on Barbara was that it stunted her growth, resulting in her appearing small in stature and childlike, even into her teens and adulthood. Barbara also reportedly was diagnosed with at least one form of mental illness at an early age. 
She was later diagnosed with various serious mental health and personality disorders, including DID, or Dissociative Personality Disorder, formerly known as Multiple Personality Disorder, and Schizophrenia. Her behavior was erratic, and Barbara was prone to telling stories and falsehoods regarding her identity. Much later in her life, when she was caught up in legal issues due to her deceptions, Barbara would claim that she created false identities because she'd never, quote, felt comfortable in her own skin. She said that due to her disorder, adults did not take her seriously and treated her like a child. This confused her when she was young and angered her as she became an adult. So she used her appearance to manipulate others partly out of revenge for being slighted most of her life. Whether this is true or a convenient excuse to play on the court's sympathies is for you to decide, since it's anyone's guess. She went to great lengths during her teens to gain sympathy from at least one family. She had been placed in a psychiatric facility during her youth when her family could no longer control her behavior and her mental health deteriorated. She escaped from the facility and this is when it appears a pattern of lies and deception by Barbara began. Lies, deceptions, and false identities will play a major role in the rest of this story. After her escape, Barbara reportedly encountered a family whom she convinced that she was an orphan, who had been abused at a children's orphanage and had run away. Her tale was so convincing that the family believed her completely and began the process of trying to adopt her. Of course, when authorities became involved, her story soon unraveled and her family was notified that she'd been found. When they discovered the elaborate lies she'd told about her identity, Barbara's family once again had her committed to a psychiatric facility where she remained for the next several years. Barbara would leave the hospital sometime in her late 20s. Whether she was released or escaped is also unclear. What is known is that just before her 30th birthday, she turned up at Masarek University in Breno, Masarek is the second largest university in the Czech Republic. Barbara was studying musical composition and soon became acquainted with another 30-year-old student by the name of Katerina Morova. The random connection made by these two women would set off a chain of events that would shock and horrify the public once details came to light just a few short years later. Katerina Morova was born in 1973 to Ladislav and Aliska Morova. Katerina had two sisters. The three girls were born in quick succession. Katerina was followed by Gabriela a year later in 1974. In 1975, the youngest, Clara, was born. The girls were very close. Katerina and Gabriela were both very studious. School came first, and their noses were often buried in books. Clara was the most active of the sisters. She enjoyed playing sports, including gymnastics, synchronized swimming, and volleyball. Clara and Katerina were especially close, and they both suffered from some form of mental illness. Clara's challenges were more serious. At a young age, she began exhibiting signs of schizophrenia. She claimed to have visions and heard voices telling her she had a divine mission to fulfill, a la Joan of Arc. Katerina, who in many respects became her sister's caretaker, either believed in or went along with Clara's delusions. They both often spoke using religious language and agreed that together they had a special mission to fulfill for God.
Clara entered into a relationship in her teens with a man named Radek Kofel. At the age of 18, Clara became pregnant and she and Radek were married. In October 1997, their son Jacob was born. Two years later, they had a second child, another boy they named Andrej. Clara and Radek were not financially stable, both being so young when they started their family. Clara also had difficulties parenting her children due to her mental illness. They lived with Clara's parents during the first year of their marriage and until they could secure an apartment of their own. Clara became a devoted mother to her children and she and Radek appeared to have a solid marriage. The boys thrived, nurtured not only by their parents and grandparents, but also by their extended family, including their aunts Katerina and Gabriella. Gabriella would later say of her sister Clara, quote, She was a great mother and I admired her. I wished that in the future I'd have the same relationship with my own children, end quote. Clara, like her sisters, entered university, where she studied economics. She earned a degree and began working as a secretary. Katerina was studying music and at the same time working at a daycare center. Clara looked up to her older sister and often asked her advice on parenting her boys due to Katerina's experience working with children. But Clara's mental and emotional issues began to surface more frequently a few years into the marriage. This led to fights and arguments between her and Radek. He later claimed that his wife's schizophrenia caused her to act out irrationally and sometimes violently towards him. In 2003, he'd had enough and sought a divorce. Clara became depressed after the breakup of her marriage. She called on her sister Katerina for support. Katerina could see that her sister needed her help, so she moved into Clara's home. Radek was secure in the fact that his boys were being well taken care of, so he gave Clara full custody. He continued to have regular visits and frequent contact with Jacob and Andrej. The Morova sisters' lives seemed to be stable and on track. And then, Barbara Skrilova entered their lives. The next part of the story is a little perplexing. Katerina became friends with Barbara at university and even helped her get hired on at the daycare center where she worked. So it's clear that Katerina knew that Barbara, who looked like a very young girl, was actually a woman who was also in her early 30s. But in 2005, when Clara met Barbara through her sister, she was told that Barbara was a 12-year-old girl by the name of Annika. Annika claimed to be an orphan who had escaped from a group home where she had been abused. Clara, who had a heart for children, took Annika, or Anna as she was called by the sisters, into her home in Kurim, a small town in the Brno County District. Of course, Katerina knew that her friend was lying to her sister, but for some reason went along with the ruse. Barbara, a.k.a. Anna, also claimed to be very ill and in need of a lot of medical attention. Barbara had left her job at the daycare center allegedly due to an illness. She never returned and was not seen again by her co-workers. But Clara's neighbors described her new ward, Anna, as a, quote, pale, sickly child who was often carried up and down the stairs as she couldn't navigate them on her own. Anna had many doctor appointments and hospital visits, but she would only allow Clara's sister, Katerina, to take her to these appointments. Clara would receive notes from Anna's doctors with instructions as to her care. Later, it was believed that Katerina was the author of these notes. Some of the treatments prescribed by doctors was within the normal range of care, bed rest, avoiding stress, etc. 
but others of the doctor's orders were downright bizarre. Clara was told that Anna required daily massages of her back, arms, and legs. These massages were to be administered by Clara and sometimes lasted for hours. The doctor explained that Anna's condition would be helped by daily, hours-long, gentle stroking of her body. But then Clara was told that, quote, gentle stroking of Anna's lady parts was also warranted. This, she was told, would help keep Anna calm and help to reduce agitation and stress. Clara dutifully followed the doctor's orders. Now, remember, Clara still believed that Anna was a 12-year-old girl. Pretty gross. Within months of taking Anna in, Clara was convinced, or perhaps took it upon herself, to adopt the orphan. This came as a surprise to everyone, since Clara already had her hands full and her finances stretched, providing for her two sons. And no one had ever heard Clara mention wanting to adopt a child. The reality, it seems, is that Anna, a.k.a. Barbara, was a master manipulator who always got what she wanted. And what she wanted now was to receive attention and be mothered and cared for by Clara. Clara took on the responsibility of seeing to Anna's never-ending needs, but her own children became neglected in the meantime. Most likely because they had just had their home life disrupted by divorce and now had to share their mother's attention with a pale, sickly stranger living in their home, Jacob and Andrej began acting out. Anna began working on Clara, goading her to lose patience with her sons. She would point out their sour attitudes and complaints. But she went even further. Sometimes she would break things or make a mess and blame it on the boys. With Anna's constant need for support and attention and her son's unhappiness with the situation at home, Clara became stressed, exhausted, and depressed. She withdrew from school and spent all of her time isolated at home. While before, Jacob and Andrej had frequent visits with their grandparents, Clara now told them that the boys were displaying behavioral problems. Clara blamed her parents for this, saying that the boys did not respect her as an authority figure because they'd spent too much time with their grandparents. She told them she was limiting their access to the boys until she could get their behavior under control. The boys' father still had regular weekend visits with them. But in the summer of 2006, Clara informed him that the boys would be attending an educational program that was held on the weekends, so they would not be available. Roddick's visits with the children ended at this time. Clara had one good friend whom she'd spent time with. They had children the same age and would sometimes take the boys on outings together. This friend, Marcella, later reported that she began hearing from Clara much less often beginning in 2005. Marcella had learned that her friend had taken in an orphan and was caring for the child. The story Clara told her was that Annika's parents were drug addicts who had dropped her daughter off with a caregiver when she was just a little girl and never returned. One of the last times Marcella saw Clara and the boys was a trip to a movie theater. The orphan Anna, sorry, I had to say that at least once in this episode. Okay, I've got it out of my system. Anna had come along on this outing. It was the first time Clara's friend had met the little girl and she found her quiet and strange. Anna avoided eye contact with Marcella. Whenever she tried to address the girl or even look her way, Anna would cast her eyes down to the floor. Clara explained this behavior by saying that Anna was autistic and wary of strangers. Later, when the truth was revealed that Anna, a.k.a. Barbara, was not a child but a grown woman, some would later say that it was her eyes that gave her away. 
They described her eyes as too worldly, too mature, and not like a child's eyes. They found it creepy. Marcella stopped hearing from her friends soon after this and eventually lost all contact with her. Incredibly, Clara was able to legally adopt Anna. Of course, there was no official record of Anna's birth, since she technically didn't exist. But this was explained away by saying that her parents had been so messed up on drugs they had never taken care of these types of matters. Because of this, it took a bit more wrangling to make the adoption legal. Katerina had a friend who was familiar with the state and court processes. He found a way to provide or fudge every requirement needed to get the adoption papers approved. By this point, Katerina and Anna had isolated both Clara and the boys from the outside world. The next step was to use Clara's mental illness to gain complete control over her. One tool at their disposal was by manipulating her tendency towards religion-based delusions. And Barbara, a.k.a. Anna, had the perfect vehicle to take these delusions to the next level. By exposing Clara to the worldview of a cult-like spiritual organization known as the Grail Movement. The Grail movement began prior to World War II in Germany. A self-proclaimed messiah by the name of Oskar Ernst Bernhardt blended a mix of Christianity and New Age ideas to form the organization. Grail beliefs centered around the idea of reincarnation, or as Bernhardt put it, quote, living multiple earth lives. Bernhardt also claimed to have had visions of himself as Moses in a past life. Bernhardt had published a book in 1926 outlining his beliefs titled in the Light of Truth, under his pen name Abrushin. He began amassing a following in the 1930s, but Hitler banned all writings and teachings connected with the Grail movement in 1938. The German government also stripped Bernhardt of land he owned in Austria that had been set aside as a community for Grail members. Abrushin was arrested and held in Innsbruck prison. He was eventually released, but spent the rest of his life under house arrest until his death in 1941. At the end of World War II, many European citizens were looking for an escape from the harsh reality they just experienced during wartime and its aftermath. The Grail movement began attracting more followers in Europe and around the world. Adherents of the Grail message, as it was called, worshipped a Christian god who began as a, quote, eternal light. According to Grail movement teachings, humanity consisted of what was called spirit germs. Grail followers also believed in the existence of gnomes, sprites, and other similar creatures. Basic tenets of the Grail movement included the belief that followers can get into heaven by doing good deeds. But they also believed that they were allowed to do anything, even commit crimes, in the furtherance of what they classified as for the greater good of humanity. For some members, this gave them permission to hurt and abuse others. I mean, it was all kind of a gray area, right? If someone says you can do whatever you want as long as you believe you're doing it for a good purpose, well, you can see how easily bad people could twist and manipulate this to serve their own purposes, right? And we've already established that Barbara Skrilova was no stranger to lies and deceptions to get her own selfish needs met. Now she'd twist the beliefs of the Grail movement to gain control over those she wished to do her bidding. Barbara's father, Joseph Skrola, was a leader of a local chapter of an offshoot of the Grail movement. It appeared that Barbara had some help along the way from other members of this sect, once the events of this case came to light. 
but more on that later. It's just enough to note right now that it's clear she had some help later on and that grill members were most likely the source of this assistance. It's possible that some of Barbara's so-called beliefs came from this sect of the grail movement or that she made them up herself to justify what happened next. It's unclear, and I don't want to point fingers at other people who might take part in this organization and had absolutely nothing to do with the type of crimes committed by Barbara, Katerina, Clara, and a few others who joined in. Katerina, it's believed, became a member of the sect soon after becoming acquainted with Barbara at university. The Grail Message Outlook on Child Rearing advocated a firm approach. Children were to be disciplined by their parents in order to guide them to become upstanding, responsible citizens. Nothing out of the ordinary there. But Barbara would take this to an abusive level, and the Morova sisters would follow her lead. Along the way, other members of the sect also became involved in disciplining Clara's children. As I mentioned, Barbara, a.k.a. Anna's needs, were all-encompassing, and she wanted all of Clara's attention. She became jealous of Clara's sons, 8-year-old Andrej and 10-year-old Jacob, which is why she first started causing problems between them and their mother. Now, remember that the boys had already started acting out a bit when their mother started neglecting them in favor of Anna. This is a normal reaction by children when they miss the love and attention of a parent. But Anna blew it up into something bigger. The idea that the boys were just bad seeds. She convinced Clara that serious intervention should be taken so that the boys would not, quote, go down a bad road and become a serious problem. She pointed to the teachings of the Grail movement to back up her warnings. Anna introduced a man she called the doctor to help. This so-called doctor was consulted by phone, but he only responded by text message. There are two theories of who this person actually was. The first theory is, of course, that it was Barbara, a.k.a. Anna herself, who was pretending to be the doctor. The second theory was that there was an actual member of the Grail sect on the other end of these text messages that Barbara had enlisted to do her bidding. In any case, the doctor began sending suggestions of how the boys should best be disciplined. The women carried out these suggestions to the letter. Over time, the punishments became harsher and then downright brutal. The first suggestion was that the boys be put in a timeout when they misbehaved. Seems innocent enough, but once again, was anything but. The women were instructed to place cages in the basement in their home in Kurum. The boys were to be locked up as a punishment for misbehavior. The women began using this method of punishment. Soon, the boys were locked up for longer periods of time. Over the next several months, the abuse of the boys escalated. Their mouths were covered by gags when they cried out to be let out of the basement. Food was withheld from them until they repented for what they did. But even then, they were not fed much, and some of their meals were simply skipped. They began to receive beatings from Clara and Katerina. They were not allowed to leave the cage to use the bathroom or shower. They were left to lie in the filthy cages, surrounded by their own waste, cold and hungry. It didn't take long for the boys' wills to be broken, and they would agree to anything in order to escape their misery. The first thing they had to promise, of course, was never to reveal the abuse that they were being subjected to. As a matter of fact, they were brainwashed into believing that they deserved it, and it was for their own good. A strange and horrifying detail about this type of abuse against those who are powerless is that when the abused are reduced to objects by their abusers, it becomes easier for some reason for other people to participate in the abuse. 
One example of this is the case of Sylvia Likens, an American teenager who in the 1960s was tortured and abused by her caregiver, Gertrude Banaszewski. Sylvia, like the boys, was also chained up in a basement. Her abuse escalated over a short period of time to include beatings, starvation, being burned by lit cigarettes, etc. Other people, including children, joined in abusing Sylvia. Gertrude's children and even neighborhood kids who knew it was happening to her, rather than summoning help, beat and tortured Sylvia to death. She died at the age of 16 of her extensive injuries and starvation. Likewise, the boys were abused not just by those who resided in the home, but also by others, including some members of the Grail sect. They joined in dousing the boys with freezing cold water, forcing them to cut themselves with knives, waterboarding them, and some began sexually abusing them as well. The story gets even darker and more disturbing from there, but I'll reserve that information for part two, in case you want to skip over the details of the child abuse. There will be a trigger warning and timestamps for the most disturbing parts of the story at the beginning of part two. But for now, I'll end with something I hope will help you sleep a little better. The boys were rescued and survived. The way they were rescued was something you could only call divinely orchestrated, or perhaps just a very, very lucky break. On May 7, 2007, a man who lived in the same neighborhood as the Morova sisters, but was not acquainted with them, was home putting the final touches on a baby's nursery. His wife had just given birth to their first child, and he was understandably excited. He was setting up a new baby monitor in the nursery and switched on the video camera to test it out. The video that greeted him seemed so odd that at first he didn't believe it to be real. There was no sound on the monitor, but the video feed showed what looked to be a boy of about seven years old inside a metal cage. The boy was naked, looked dirty, and was disheveled, but otherwise seemed calm. The man watched as the boy walked around the cage looking intently at the floor as if searching for something. As he continued observing the video, the boy leaned over, picked up something from the floor that was too small to be seen on camera, and placed it in his mouth. Somewhat disturbed, but still not sure of what he was seeing, the man shut off the video camera. He left for a couple of hours to visit his wife in the hospital. When he returned, he turned the baby monitor back on and once again saw the little boy in the cage. This time he was lying on the floor, still unclothed. The man had seen enough now to know something was very, very wrong. He called the police. When they arrived, he showed them the video and explained that his video feed must have gotten mixed up with another baby monitor camera. They concluded that this must mean the house where the boy was caged was located somewhere close by. Police began a house-by-house -house search for the boy in the cage. When they reached the Morova house, the scene that greeted them was so extreme, it would become a local news item. It was something that no one in Kurum could believe had taken place in their once peaceful, middle-class community. It would take time and investigation to get to the bottom of this terrible tale, as well as to unravel who the so-called orphan, Annika, really was. That will do it for part one of The Girl Who Cried Orphan. There's a lot more to this story. As bizarre details continue to unfold, Barbara persists in disguising her real identity, tricking and manipulating law enforcement officers and other officials. Make sure you're subscribed or following the show to hear the conclusion of this unbelievable story next week. 
But if you'd rather not wait, you can get part two early and ad-free by becoming a Patreon member. For as little as $2 a month, you'll have access to all episodes of Once Upon a Crime early and ad-free. You'll also receive exclusive OUAC merchandise as a thank you for being a patron, as well as bonus episodes you can't hear anywhere else. To find out more and become a member, go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime. There's a link in the show notes. Once Upon a Crime is written and produced by me, Esther Sanchez Ludlow. My research and production assistant is Lorena Garcia. Additional research for this episode was provided by Emma Bataglia. Until next time, be good to one another.